everybody, it's me, Katie Osaurus, and welcome back to Infinite Quest. Last week on our Tuesday episode, you learned a little bit about me and my life. So this week, it's Eric's turn to get interviewed. I ask Eric some truly compelling questions, and we talk a little bit about his childhood and what it was like for him growing up. As always, before we begin, we've got a couple of announcements for you. I think we mentioned this already on the podcast, but we just wanted to let you know that we heard from several of you that it was really difficult to find Infinite Quest on Patreon. We have spoken with our customer service team and we have resolved that issue. And so if you went looking for Infinite Quest earlier and couldn't find us on Patreon, there were apparently a lot of people who were having that struggle. So if you are interested in supporting us, we should be a lot easier to find and you can find us over at patreon.com slash infinite quest. We are gearing up to start our May and June Eric moving fundraising spectacular over on the Patreon, which means that we are going to be dropping uh, quite a bit of additional content, including some movie watch alongs, maybe some cooking stuff. We don't really know. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff and you should check it out. So that's basically it. Here's an episode about Eric. Bye. Transition. Hi, everybody. It's me, Katie Osaurus, and welcome back to the series that Eric insisted on doing called hey. Asking Each Other Weird Questions. About I think it's history. a good idea, Katie. There are all sorts of questions that we want to ask our fellow humans, but there's never like an occasion to ask people like, you know, what did their what was their favorite smelling room in the house? Like, I love to smell my basement. You know, I thought it smelled nice. You know, you never there's never an avenue to ask those questions. And I thought I thought this would be nice. But thanks for shading all over my idea, Katie. You're welcome. Uh, I consider it my personal goal, so shit all over everything. Wait a minute. I don't know where I was going with this. You're a fantastic interviewer. You're, the first thing you want to do, Katie, is make the person you're interviewing feel really dumb. That's I told f- you right that I was really super nervous about this. What did you're I say? Gonna, you're gonna remember that? You're gonna do I did. Um, okay, so here's the thing, Eric. I don't care about where you went to school, and I don't care about where you grew up, and I don't care. I mean, I do care. I care in a certain way, but I'm much more interested in one specific thing that mm-hmm. you have. I, do you like how I'm just like jumping right into it? Like just hard, this is a hard hitting journalistic question. Very hard hitting. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, also, okay. and also like, you know, it's not just about what you would want to know. It's about what the listeners might want to know. You know, you're there surrogate. We'll, you know? we'll get, we'll get around to like the normal okay. people questions, but okay. I thought of a really good question in the car while I was eating a donut. And so now I want to ask it to you. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So, We'll get to the regular people questions. I just want to stress that. But like, I want to start with something very specific because it is something that you've told me a lot about and you have talked a lot about uh, in different places, but I want to sort of like aggregate it. And I want you to paint a picture for us of what it was like sitting around the dining room table at your grandparents' house. Wow. And why... That was so formulative to you as a person. Wow, that's a rocking question, Katie. That's a great question. Um, okay, so to preface this, um, I refer to commonly, like among the people that know me and like well, um, that I grew up around my grandparents' dinner table. Um, and so, history. Um, in a group in my in my family, we have a group that we call Mag Nine, Magnificent Nine, which is a term that I coined which consists of uh, my grandparents on my mom's side, uh, which are my only living grandparents. Um, So my grandmother, my grandfather, my mom's brother, his wife, my aunt, their daughter, and then my immediate family, my mom, my dad, my brother, and me, totaling nine, the magnificent nine. Um, And my grandparents, when I was growing up, lived in this epic house. Um, It wasn't like a mansion epic. Um, like rich hoity-toity epic. Um, it was just, it, well, basically it was a house built, this is in Connecticut, it was a house built in, um, I would probably say the late 1600s. Um, and it had, it just kept going through lives. Like it used to be a farm. Um, then it was turned into a hospital during the Revolutionary War. Um, so it was like a makeshift sort of hospital. Then it turned back into a farm. Um, and it had this whole, like life throughout American history. Um, what was the front door like? Paint a picture of the front of this house. Well, the front of the house, I don't think originally didn't. It was it didn't like have a front door because it was a, it was a it was a farm, you know. So it didn't have like this 
house front door. Um, but the front door, there was a small gravel driveway. So you're, it's, this is in Connecticut, Ridgefield, Connecticut, um, which is where a lot of very rich people live. <laughs> um, so it was kind of weird being like a not rich person being like, am I even allowed here? Um, <laughs> it was weird. Um, but there was a small gravel driveway. There was a light post out front, like a lamp post out front, which was also very old. And you'd turn in, uh, and there was like an eight foot tall by 10 foot wide sort of square indent in the front of the house. Um, there was no grand front. It was just this little indent, um, in which was like a stone sort of mud way thing. And then a screen door, which it wasn't the original screen door, but this thing was a piece of shit. Like it was the <laughs> floppiest screen door. Um, and my grandfather, uh, who we affectionately call Zer, T-Z-I-R, um, uh, he had rigged like a magnet on the outside of the door and on the wall so it would like click shut. And I very distinctly remember the sound of that click. Uh, and then it had like a brass uh, door handle and it would open into like a mudroom. And to the left was the east wing of the house. And to the right was the west wing of the house. Um, so, and there was no way, like once you were upstairs in the east wing, there was no way to get to the to the west wing of the house. Would you say that the west wing was forbidden? <sighs> no. <laughs> yes, maybe. It was where their room was, so I was definitely not about to go into my grandparents' room. So there were forbidden sections of the West Wing, that's for sure. Is that an Aaron Sorkin reference? No, that was a Beauty and the Beast reference. Oh, oh, okay. Did you make a Disney reference, Katie? That's so unlike you. Wow. I know. Um, I'm so creative. But uh, the whole house was just just old, by American standards. I mean, it was you know 1600s old. But these massive, like six inch by six inch, really roughly cut beams held the thing together. Um, uh, the 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 anatomy of the house was very strange. Like houses would not be built like this anymore. But like there was a there were like little offlets of the house. Like so, their laundry room wasn't just some shitty room. It was like there's this little hallway into this little annex, which which my uh, grandfather refers to as the triage, um, because like a triage nurse, uh, you know, a, a triage nurse is a nurse who arrives on the scene who just very quickly assesses and prioritizes the situation. Um, and that's where he kept a lot of his tools and stuff because he had a shed out back, which was his actual workshop. And so the triage was where if something was broken, he would take it there to assess it. He had a small set of tools there. And then if it need, if it warranted more repair, he would take it to the shed. So he called it the triage, which I love very much. You know, you have that. But did that come in or out of the house originally being a hospital? I imagine that. Like, was it the triage? No, no, no. Because the house wasn't built as a hospital. It was built as, as sort of a farm type deal. Oh, something okay. like that. Um, so it, it, every every part of this house has been had been used for any number of different things. Um, and then the dining room was where the horses and cattle and whatever were kept. Uh, I don't know anything about farms, can you tell? Um, but it was really immensely tall. And at the very top, I remember being a little kid and my dad telling me there, there was this this weird structure running. It was like this pipe with a weird curly thing running across the top, the very top of this arc, you know, this 25 foot high ceiling. Um, uh, and it had like a chain running across it, and and it was for uh, scraping the the dung, the the manure off the floor of the barn. It would like you know rotate and pull a, a big thing across the floor. Um, so that was cool. But my my grandparents who have had this epic life, I, I mean really epic epic life. Um, uh, they were, I think it's it's probably been long enough that I can say this, but they were run out of Dubai by who they they assume were the UAE government. Um, they went to uh, to Dubai in the early seventies um, to found basically um, a consultant group. So Dubai, a lot of people were going to Dubai at the time to start various businesses of various kinds. And if you were trying to start a kind of business, there would be a consulting company that knew the area, knew the territory. Um, who could consult with you on how to start that kind of business. But they were all, they weren't consolidated. It was a bunch of different kinds of business. And so they were like, oh, we're going to start one consulting firm that has parts of it that can do any of these kinds of businesses, but it's going to be a one-stop shop. It's to be a consolidated consulting firm. And it's one of those things like that was going to happen. And whoever successfully did that was going to become very rich. <laughs> like that is, I mean, look at Dubai today. Could you imagine the consulting people who were involved in that? How much money do you have? <laughs> So they were the first people to start that endeavor. Um, but it's a very long story, and I've, uh, they never just tell the whole story. You can only get it out of them piece by piece, and I've been piecing it together over the years. But basically the idea was 
in order for a non-national to run a business there, you have to uh, you have to be partnered with a person who is a national. So they moved to Dubai in the '70s, started this business with a national whose name I will not say um, because I don't know what that guy's up to now. But with a person who was a national, they signed with him. It turns out the guy was full of shit um, and abandoned, took a bunch of money and abandoned the company um, a little bit into into the endeavor. And so now my grandparents, Grammy and Zer, are now running this business very illegally in a in a in a very different country. Um, they knew the, the area because my grandfather had moved to Dubai when he was a kid um, for very different, also very interesting reasons. Um, but anyways, now they were living and running a business in Dubai illegally. Um, and I think they eventually fled to England. Um, and I'm, when I say fled, I mean, they had to secretly fly out of the country. If they had been caught, they would have been detained and put in a prison for however the many fuck years. Um, it was sort of like, uh, I'm picturing, um, what is it, uh, Argo, where they had that whole flight <laughs> thing. It was very much like, it's not exaggerating to say it was that type of thing. Like, they've told me the story about how they had to select flights for different days and, like, pretend that those were the flights, but then secretly work out a deal. So that it was amazing. But they, they, the final straw was when um, their brake lines were cut. Um, they woke up and started their car, and their brake lines had been cut. Um, and this was the uh, after an escalation of many different things, basically saying, get out, you know, or either stay or die or get out of here or something like that. Um, and that brake line, actually, Katie, we've Skyped with my grandparents before or Skyped, I'm showing my age. We've been on a Zoom call with my grandparents before. You can see it in the background. They still have the cut brake lines. That was the final straw for why they had to flee Dubai. Um, so they fled to um, the UK uh, and lived for, uh, I don't can't remember if it was two months or two years, but they couldn't work, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything that would indicate that they were there. And so they had to basically hide, and I say hide, they lived with, you know, they weren't, you know, living in a, in a, in a box or anything. Um, <laughs> but they, were, they had to hide in, uh, in uh, the UK for an amount of time before like the coast was clear and they could finally hopefully make it back to America, which they did. Um, but that's a massively interesting story. So anyways, through this intense, and that's just one of a long series of weird stuff that's happened in their lives. Throughout this whole adventure, they'd, they've collected a massive amount of very interesting items. And so their house just oozed class, just oozed <laughs> class, um, which is not to say class like rich and wealthy class, but just like artifacts and, and uh, you know, whole things just meant to facilitate conversation. Um, and that was what being at my grandparents' house was about. It was about conversation. And that, my grandparents' house was where Mag9 all went for Christmas and Thanksgiving when we all lived in the same place. Once we all scattered, it was just Christmas. And then once schedules started changing, it was very rare that we would go back there. And then COVID hit and now, and they moved and now the house is owned by somebody unrelated. Um, but that's where we would go for Christmas. Um, and it was a big ordeal you know, we, my parents would like coach my brother and I, my brother and me on the drive there on world events. Um, because above all, above all, my family is curious. They just want to know stuff. They want to know things. And so my grandfather, who is, uh, both my grandparents are very highly educated, um, very articulate, very careful and, and deliberate about the words that they say. Um, and my grandfather, Zer, was a very sort of patriarchal. Grammy and Zer were both patriarchal and matriarchal, um, respectively. Um, but if Zer asked you a question, that was a really big deal. Not because there was a right or wrong answer to it, um, and you had to get it right or else, you know, you had hell to pay. It just meant that there was something about you that he wanted to know and he was curious about. But I didn't know that until later in my life, for the, until I was probably 11 or 12, I was convinced that there was a correct or incorrect answer that he wanted to hear from me. It was terrifying to be asked a question by him. And then later, as I got older, I started learning like, oh, he just wants to know the actual answer. Like, I don't have to think of the answer. I just answer to the best of my knowledge. Um, but the reason this, this whole ordeal was so important to me was um, it at some point during this whole dinnery Christmas ordeal, we'd all be sitting at the table. Um, this is also where I learned like, you know, we would eat very properly, you know, not like over, 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 uh, blown, like weird, uh, you know, if you put your fork in the wrong place, somebody would freak out, but you know, there were the, how to set a table. There were like several forks and several spoons and knives all arranged in a specific way. And, um, and the manners of like, you know, if somebody is passing something around the table and they pass it to you and you don't want it, you still take it and pass it to the person to your left. You don't just say, no, thank you. So stuff like that. 
Um, but anyways, at some point we'd be sitting down at the table and we'd eat uh, meals that have now become famous in my family that my grandfather is very old now. And so I've made a very strong point to make sure I know how to make exactly those meals so I can continue that tradition. Um, uh, one of which I've made for you, Katie, actually. Um, bolognese. Uh, but anyways, at this table, um, really, in, sometimes heated, sometimes not, but, but really specific conversations were had. Um, and this was during the Bush era, so that. Um, but very specific conversations that were had. And what I mean by specific is they were addressing very precise ideas. Like the way that they would present ideas was like, they would use words and whatnot to, to isolate a specific part of something that they wanted to talk about. And that would get tossed around the table. Do you, you know, remember the, the first time when like you made like a really good point and you were like super <laughs> proud of yourself? Yes, I do. I do. Um, and I'm kind of ashamed because I, this was, so the, the process of me learning to, to, to speak at this table and learning how conversation works at this table um, was for the first 10-ish years of my life. You're just happy that you they're not asking you because you have no idea what's going on. And you're just like, oh my gosh, please leave me out of this. Um, and then at some point, but my, you know, my curiosity was clicking on. And so at some point, I was, it became sort of a game to try to follow what they're talking about. And so, you know, this was a once a year thing at the, at the exact same time of every year. And so it was like a little, you know, yearly check-in or whatever. So I would go and, you know, probably when I was like 11, I started being able to follow going, oh, I see what they're talking about there. You know, Tracy's disagreeing with Carl about that. And then, da, da, da. And then I would come back the next year, a year older, and I would think, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. Holy shit, I think she's wrong about that. Or right about that, like, or I, I agree or disagree. I agree with that, but not this. Um, and then there was a whole two-year period where I wanted to be a part of the conversation. I could follow the conversation. I knew enough about what they were talking about, and I had opinions about them such that I wanted to be a part of it. But you, it was really difficult to get a word in because everybody was very... I mean, people weren't just yelling and talking over each other, but there was no gap between when one person would start talking and, one, and the next person would because everybody was listening intently and everybody had something to say. And so the craft of getting your thing to say to be the next thing was very, very difficult and very delicate, I think. And so for like two years, probably when I was like 13 and 14, every time we'd be driving home from Grammy and Zers, I would be frustrated with my mom that like, I can't get a word in at the table, you know, like, because I'm a kid and they don't care, you know. Well, not that they didn't care, but like, you know, they weren't used to us wanting to talk, but I did. Um, and so that began the sort of journey of learning to figure out how to get it so that I was the next person to talk without interrupting the person before me. And that was difficult because one way to do that is to just, while that person's point is tapering off, to just start talking until their voice fades out and yours fades in and, and, and then you're talking. But that's a very bad faith way of doing that because... And, you know, I, I also noticed certain conversational things that I still don't still either like or dislike to this day. Like one thing that really frustrates me is when a person is making a point and midway through their point, somebody listening has decided that they understand where this person is going with that. And so they interrupt as if they've heard the whole point and keep going because that's just inaccurate. You're now discussing an issue that was not the issue. You're, 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 a straw man has appeared. You're arguing against something that is not what the person that you're arguing with has actually proposed. So I didn't like that. So anyways, learning to get a word in was difficult, and eventually I got there. But the first time I ever got like recognition and applause or whatever from the adults who I was like so desperate to run with conversationally was, uh, it was so cheap. Because at this point I knew, you know, at some point when you're a kid, you learn what you look like to other people. You learn that you're, you know, cute or whatever. And, and, and whenever you say something, they're like, oh, the little kid has an opinion on, you know, tax cuts or whatever. Like I knew that was the case and they would be impressed with any fucking thing that I said. Um, but, uh, somebody had used the expression, uh, uh, have your cake and eat it too. And I'd never heard that expression before. And so I asked what that expression meant. And it's basically when whoever explained it to me said, um, you know, it's when you have something that's good and it's usually you can't have that good thing and this other good thing, but you feel entitled to having both the things that's wanting to have your cake and eat it too. And I said, oh, like the Bush tax cuts. And my whole family was, was like, very good. Yes, good job. And I was just like rolling, like internally rolling my eyes. Like I knew that would get a fucking rise out of you. piece. <laughs> like I knew you would think that was very clever. Like, all right. But anyways, so this table was very, um, 
very quick. It was very difficult to follow what was happening because it was we were moving past things through and past ideas so quickly. And then it was very hard to get your word in at the time that you wanted it to because as soon as somebody finished talking, that's like a checkpoint in the conversation. The next person to talk is going to bring up another point. So if you have a point that you want to make about that, you had to say it right then. But it was also immensely impolite to just interrupt or talk over or whatever. Um, and so watching like these these you know, ideas fly across the table in front of this little kid, you know, and eventually realizing that I was really curious what, what they were talking about. Um, and then learning how to become a part of that, not just by following it and, and having opinions about it, but then the actual like technical skill of, of learning how to actually be a part of this conversation um, was one of the more formative periods of my life. It taught me to, to, to value ideas, value other people's opinions, which is not to say that like I, that's that I'm special for doing that. Everybody should do that, um, but that's just that is how I particularly learned to do that, um, and also learned. I, I, I'm very grateful to get to to know my grandparents as an adult now, because things that used to be very scary to me when other people would ask me questions. You know, my grandfather is he speaks very slowly. He sits a very particular way in his chair when he's about to ask a question, and he holds his fork. He puts his elbow on the table, which was one a no-no. Um, so he puts it, but he's you know he's the, the the oldest guy in the family, oldest person in the family, so he gets to do that. Um, but he would hold his fork by its tail and po- have the tip of the fork, and he would point it at the person that he was asking the question to, and he would sort of like wave it just a little bit and like bounce it in his hand, and he would say so Eric, and then he would pause and he would just go. Uh, so he would sort of claim the time. And then sort of as he's going, pick the very precise words that he's that he's trying to say. Um, and he's I always you know, he can ask such precise questions. Um, it's I mean, you, you, he's asked you questions, Kitty, you know that. But um, but learning that he's just curious, learning that he's just curious, he's not looking for it. He just wants to know the answer to that question um, was big for my relationship with him. But but also my relationship with just people and what people do. You know, it's it's easy to assume somebody's being malicious or something, but maybe they just want to know. Who knows? Um, but anyways, that was a very formative uh, experience uh, in my life. What was your favorite thing that they had at the house? Like, did you have like a like was there like an artifact or an object that you would just always go look at? And you were like excited to see. Oh man, um, eesh, one of them's kind of dark. I don't know if I want to talk about it because it's like pretty fucking dark um and doesn't paint them in a great light i mean the circumstances were not what they but um let me think jeez i don't know i uh can i ask a different question no no no. that's a very good question um i think they had all sorts of swords and whatnot swords (laughs) and 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 shimitars and all sorts of stuff all over the walls um paintings chandeliers um, lots of sculptures and art from from around the world, um, especially they're they're very concerned with the Middle East. That is, and by concerned with, I mean involved with the Middle East, um, because my grandfather moved there when he was like four with his his father, um, and lived there for a very long time when he was a kid. So they've always been very involved with that. Um, but uh, they had three, two, two, three, no, two pianos, a, a baby grand piano and uh, an upright piano, which had been passed down. Um, for a very long time, um, one of which was gifted to me at some point, which I've since gotten rid of. Um, but uh, there was a lot of musical instruments around. Um, music was just a huge part. There were all, my whole that side of my family were all choral singers. Um, but uh, but I mean, they had a bunch of stuff. Like I, I think a lot of the reason a lot of the stuff was so cool is because it was so normal. Like it was something that was a very normal thing to have in very what we would consider to be abnormal circumstances. Um, and by what abnormal, mean? I mean, well, I mean, I, I guess I mean foreign circumstances, like um, souks in Dubai that no longer exist. Like in the, oh, they had it. Oh, that's actually the great example. So uh, there's, they had this scale, this massive scale. Um, was, you would hang it from something. It was just, just old. Like you could tell by every part of this thing that it was old and it wasn't made by a brand of any kind. It was made by somebody who made it had tool marks all over it. Um, but it was a scale from, um, the souk, you know, which is basically a a massive flea market, um, in Dubai. And it was, um, and it was from when my grandfather lived in Dubai, um, the first time. So we're talking, it would have been 40 something. Um, and, uh, they, and they had a series of weights that were used, um, 
in that souk. I don't know how they ended up with the scale, but in, in the souk, if you were buying a, a, a weight of something, you know, they had a big scale and they had weights to counter the scale. And so they had that and I always had a really fun time. They had one that was really like rough and rusty and sort of thrown together. And then they had another one that was very delicate and well-preserved and, and very precise. Um, and that was more like a, you know, a scale that you would see in science class that would sit at the table. And, but it was one of those, but it was very nice. Um, I have no idea how they, how they got their hands on that. Um, but I, I, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of the things that I have the most affection for there were because they were such little pieces of somebody else's life. Like you can see like, wow, somebody in, in, in Dubai in the 50s used this you know, kitchen knife for 40 years or something like that. And somehow my grandfather ended up with it. And now that's the knife that he uses in his kitchen. <laughs> like everything was just, there was no like Ikea stuff. Everything there was, was acquired through like insane means and stories. And I mean, there were too many things to ask about. They had, uh, you know, foot lockers and paintings and um, a very large amount of, of lamps, like, you know, genie, you know, the kind of that you would rub and a genie would come out, not like table <laughs> lamps. But they had massive collections of those that were just tucked away in various corners of the house. Um, but everything had some strange story to it. Um, and I still ask about them. Um, I don't know, but it would, it would be really hard to pick my favorite one. Um, I think the scale as a kid, the scale was my most, my, my, my most favorite because, you know, you could, you could mess around with it and waste stuff. It was fun. So, okay. That's actually a really good segue. What was your favorite toy growing up? Like, what did you like to play with besides oh, your grandfather's antique scale? <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh. Oh, man. Um, I, I, I'm going to rattle off a couple. Because my favorite thing to play with was my dad's uh, table vice, like table-mounted vice. Um, I had a massive phase where I would go to the basement with a bunch of tinfoil and I would use a sledgehammer and the vice to compress the tinfoil into like a plate that was as hard, like as hard as I could into like this plate of metal. Um, and I used to like to make those and try to make like little suits of armor out of like th this plate metal that I had made out of those. So hammers, a table vice for sure. Um, anything with a motor in it. Um, I, I was always, I mean, I was always taking things apart. Like that, that was the biggest thing that is runs around is I love taking things apart and seeing what I could make out of the pieces. Um, so one of my favorite things that I would always try to acquire with my, you know, getting things when you're a kid is really difficult because you don't have your own money. So if I could ever find a way to get one of those little fans, you know, that they give you at summer camp, the shitty little like double A fans, those yeah. are awesome because you can just <laughs> pop off the little fan part and then you have a handle with a switch that makes the thing on the front spin. And so I would make, uh, one of my favorite things I made was um, I used Jenga blocks. I glued Jenga blocks together to make like this base in which I put one of those little motor things. Then on the, the point on the little fan thing that sticks out and spins, I hooked like a wire or something so that it was offset by one, you know? Or maybe I just used the fan thing. I don't know. But I, so, it was, so it was offset. Um, and then I tied a string to that and then rigged a coat hanger so that it would go, it curved up above the thing. So it looked like a big C mounted to a base with a motor on the bottom. And then I tied the string to the top of the coat hanger. So there was basically a string hanging that was connected to a motor on the bottom. And that was very difficult to make because I wanted it to spin indefinitely. So I had to figure out a way that the, the, the string wouldn't just get twisted and eventually stop the motor. And so I used, um, you know, uh, at the end of like uh, some hoodies, they have those little tassely things you know not just yeah. when it's tied but they have little tassely things yeah i used one of those and then i used a washer that was just smaller than that uh and so i strung the string through the end of the, of the tassely hoodie thing strung that through the washer and then connected the bottom to the motor so the string wasn't actually attached to the top it was attached to the to little doily thing but that could spin freely within the washer so it would never get tangled um and so i then when you turned it on it would spin. It would make a big sort of sphere-looking orby thing out of the spinning, out of the spinning string. And I thought it was really cool, Katie. I thought it was really cool, Katie, that if you squeeze the center, if you touch the center and bunch the center, it turns into two spinny things that are half the size of the original spinny thing, Katie. And then, Katie, Katie, if you touched a, a third of the way through the string, it would make three. And the highest I think I got to was four, four little orby things. But that's how I initially, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but that's how I originally learned about what, um, like, the harmonic sequence was and what, 
what harmonics were. So when I was in music already, I already had like this precedence of like, oh yeah, I have done that. I've built and done that experiment myself. Um, but that was one of my favorite things I ever made. Um, I probably took it apart like the day after I made it, but that was really fun to have. So my favorite toys were anything that I could destroy and make something else out of, <laughs> I guess. Those were my favorites. So did you grow up in Connecticut or did you grow up in Michigan? Because I know you lived in Michigan. Yeah, well, I lived in Connecticut till I was 12, um, moved to Michigan when I was 12, um, and then lived with my parents until I was 16, and then went to boarding school from 16 to 18, and then moved to California when I was 18. Um, so my like er, my childhood childhood, like my 12 and below childhood, was in Connecticut. Um, my dad was uh, the graphics director of Newsweek magazine um, before it became a piece of shit. Um, he left like that he could smell it. I mean, among many reasons, but one of them was like, oh shit, you know, this is, this is, this is going in a bad direction. But anyways, so he would commute to New York. I lived in on the Western side of Connecticut, Norwalk, Connecticut. And we lived in sort of a place where everybody's one of each of each. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to state some, uh, gendered things, but this was the truth at the time. Um, is everybody's dad lived in New York and everybody's mom lived at home. And because of that, we lived in sort of a community where kids didn't really know their parents um, because their dads were never home because they were always in New York and their mothers were always very distant because they had nobody all day. <laughs> they had to figure out stuff to do. And so kids ended up being very alienated um, from their parents in, in my community, um, especially since, um, you know, when you think of rich, you think of, you know, Hollywood or, or some like L.A. or, or, or some, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever. The rich people lived in Connecticut. The really rich people. I'm talking the big rich people. The kind of rich people that you will never see and never know. Like that kind of rich person, they all like live in old money rich. Old money rich, yeah. Um, so my family was not at all rich. Or if they did, they hid it. But my parents were not rich. We, we made enough to be fine. Like I'm very fortunate that my parents never really had to worry about money. Um, like we always had sort of enough, but we were by no means rich, but we were surrounded by a lot of rich people, which is why we eventually left is um, ultimately like my mom had, it was very difficult for my mom to find people that she related to people that weren't just filthy, stinking rich, frankly. Um, and uh, so anyways, my dad worked in New York with all the other dads. Um, and uh, Eventually, we moved when he got offered a, a job as a professor of journalism at Michigan State because um, my dad would he would leave in the morning before my brother and I were awake and he would come back after we went to sleep. Um, and he was like missing our early childhood because of that. Um, we would just barely see him um, when he got home during earlier in the week because they would publish his deadline was on um, Friday night. And so Thursday and Friday, he would often just stay in the city. So I didn't get to see him as much. Um, we got to see him a fair amount because um, he made a real effort to, which kudos to him. Um, but it was just unsustainable. Um, but growing up in Connecticut was nice. We had lots of woods, really like woods, like uh, uh, to romp around in and stuff. Um, it was really fun to look for brick walls in the middle of the woods. Um, there would be, you know, you'd be walking in the middle of the woods, romping around with your friends, building forts and stuff. And then all of a sudden there would be this rock wall that like extended as far to your left as you can see and as far to your right as you can see this very dilapidated rock wall that was, it was clearly deliberately put there. Um, and it's because there was so much farmland that is now no longer farmland that they've turned into forests. So it was really fun to look for those rock walls. Um, you could also find uh, doorsteps um, uh, from houses. If there was a house built um, in the early whenevers of America. Um, they often didn't have basements, but they would have concrete um, doorsteps, like in front of the front door. And so once the house was demolished, the wood would rot away, everything else would get taken away, but the one thing that wouldn't would be the doorstep. And so it would just be this perfect rectangular um, block of concrete in the middle of the woods. Um, those were really fun to look for too, uh, climbing trees and whatnot. That was really fun. Um, but I, but ultimately we didn't feel like everybody was sa uh, sailing. I'm, I'm not a sailor. My whole, my, my whole, my, my family are all sort of sailors. Um, which is, uh, was just not my thing. I'm terrified of the ocean. Um, but culturally it was, it was an ill fit. Um, cause my dad was never home and he, I mean, no, but it, 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 my dad's an ADHD guy. He's very much like me. He needs space to be able to be weird. And he was definitely in a place socially and professionally where being weird was not always the best. 
Um, whereas if you're a professor, you can be a nutty professor and it'll actually make you quite successful. <laughs> um, so yeah, eventually we left uh, for Michigan when I was, when I was 12, but I had my, my early childhood all, all in Connecticut. Um, uh, and yeah, there, there was one of my most formative, I guess trauma. I, I, I don't, feeling the use trauma for me feels weird because there's so much greater traumas that people can experience than what I have. Well, it's and not I, a contest. Right. I just wanted to, if to. something affected you profoundly in a traumatic way, that is trauma. Yeah. It's okay. Well, we can, we you can, don't have to apologize for it. I, I don't know. Like I said, that's Katie Osaurus. <laughs> that's right. If, if Katie says it, then I have to listen. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I don't feel weird talking about it, but it does feel weird to bring up without being asked, you know, like, well, Eric, would happened. you like to tell me about your trauma? <laughs> uh, sure. A, you just slipped that one right in there, didn't you? Uh, thank you for taking the bait. You're welcome. Um, but I, this is less of an interview and you just more of just you listening to me yammer on. It's um, okay. I find it deeply fascinating. Hey, it's usually on the other foot. Um, but so in my, uh, group in my school system there was something called at academically talented um and that was for the smart kids roughly speaking it was a gifted program it wasn't extensive it was just one class out of the day that you would go to and it was for academically talented students um but like my brother wasn't academically talented so and he's, he's older than me so i was always very aware that it existed and throughout my childhood you know i was taking apart motors i was building stuff i was all sorts of whatevers and so I was confident that whenever that came to be, I would get into it. Um, and the time came when the, the testing began, and I took the testing tests, um, and I didn't get into it. Um, and that was one of the more devastating days um, that I, I mean, not, it, it was a very devastating day because my understanding of myself just sort of shattered. Um, and I learned that whatever currency I felt I was rich in, you know what the whatever this was, whatever the thing that caused me to take stuff apart and build stuff and 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 try to understand harmonics and whatnot. Whatever currency that was was not valuable to these people. Um, this this thing that I was entering, the world that I was entering, none of that shit is valuable. You're gonna have to learn other stuff that you don't have, or learn to translate what you are into something that's acceptable for these people, in order to get ahead in life. Um, and so from that time on, in fifth grade, <clears throat> um, I. I prioritized above all else um, uh, intelligence, appearing smart to other people. I wanted those people who said I wasn't an AT. I wanted them to think they were wrong. I didn't want to be an AT. I wanted them to to go fuck. We really fucked up by being by by not letting that kid in. Like I didn't want to be in it because then I would actually have to prove myself. Then I would actually have to do stuff. I wanted to be the underdog that they regretted not drafting. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that way I could I don't know. I didn't have to actually work as hard as I would if I was in AT, but I would still get credit for being smart enough for getting it. And I always, I knew every kid who was in AT. I could look at a kid and I knew whether or not they were in AT. Um, Cause I like had a fucking running list in my head. Um, and if I thought I was smarter than any one of them, I hated them. Um, but yeah, from that point on, I was a dumb guy and constantly trying to prove to the world around me that they fucked up by not acknowledging it. Um, How old were you when that happened? I was 10, nine or 10. Um, so you're still in Connecticut at the time. I was. I was in fifth grade at uh, Rowayton Elementary School. Yeah. But anyways, that happened. And that contextualized my, certainly my academic experience for the, the, the rest of it. Um, but then also just with my understanding of myself and how I interact with the world. Um, so that happened. How did that, I feel like we've talked about it before. We were did. But yeah. I think the thing that I'm interested about if we're doing, if we're doing a, the history of Eric is like, did you, so you're in Connecticut, you're 10, your dad is working a lot in New York. Your mom is like awesome, but she doesn't have a lot of friends and like you as a family don't feel like you fit it. So then you find out that you don't fit in you think to this like program that you were like supposed to get into like what happened like what was the fallout from it like um i got very quiet in a lot of ways i mean i i i got very quiet um in class circumstances 
because fuck them. I'm not going to jump through their hoops if they're not going to give me the little badge, you know? Um, I got very quiet and I realized that I, I think I leaned into my usefulness in other areas. Um, and I became, I, I was very much sort of an entertainer. Um, I was always trying to make other people laugh. Um, and cause if I'm not going to be the smart kid, then at least I can be the funny kid. Um, and so I was always trying to make people laugh and ADHD really helped with that. Cause I was constantly just thinking of new possible things that I could do. Um, and I wasn't going to focus on schoolwork anyways. Um, also the signs of my ADHD are popping up throughout all this shit too. Um, but I, I became either very quiet or very outward and energetic trying to entertain people. Basically. I didn't want anybody to actually know me. I wanted to, I wanted to be either an enter entertaining to them or not on their radar at all. Um, and so during classes, I was very quiet. Um, but then during non-class things in the hallways after school, before school, um, I was constantly trying to entertain. Um, but I definitely felt, I mean, it's, it's sort of, in, in some way, it made me feel like, the, you know, the, there's the select few in the world. I, I don't believe this now at all. Um, but at the time, when I was like 10 or whatever, it made me realize, oh, there are some people in the world who have it. They have the thing and they're going to do great things and they're going to have an interesting life. And there are some of us who fucking don't, who are going to have shitty, shitty jobs that they hate. Um, and they're going to just, just, they're just shitty. They're not going to contribute. They're not going to whatever. And I can't stress this enough. I do not believe that. <laughs> Please don't take that again. That's not what I believe anymore. Um, but, and so I real, I always thought I was this protagonist type when I, in fact, oh shit, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm one of the other types. I'm one of the, the, the background characters. And so, um, you know, at some point my friends got really into skateboarding and, um, and they were all getting better at skateboarding and I was just focused. I, I became a, a, the videographer of the group. Like I learned to skateboard so that I could follow them with a camera. Um, and so I sort of leaned into this role of trying to, I guess when other people are doing noteworthy things that I did, I didn't feel that I was ever going to do. Um, I guess just try to be associated with them and, and, and be useful to them. And I mean, but at the same time I resented them. It was, it was very strange. Um, but I don't know, ultimately it, it made me, I mean, at the end of it, it made me really insecure about my, my intelligence, which I very much still am to this day. Um, but trying to, um, prove to that group, that, that class of people that, you know, that looked at me and said, like, your version of what you are is not what we value. So either learn something that we do value or just please fuck all the way off. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that was figuring out, and, and you know, that matched with my ADHD, which was, I, I absolutely was a, a, a bad student. I think one of the, the ways that I've sort of semantically dealt with it is I wasn't academically talented, I wasn't talented at academics. I was not. Like, sure, I was. I think I was pretty smart, but I was by no stretch of the imagination good at academics. I was not talented. So I, in that, I'll absolutely concede. So I guess that's sort of how I dealt with it. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I think there was a resentment that that was born then, born that day. That that absolutely doesn't go away. And if and if you're familiar with the you know the AA world at all or the recovery world at all resentment is uh, is the source of all evil basically. It sounds. It. it sounds lonely. Yeah. Yeah, it was lonely. Um, yeah, it was lonely. I. Uh, <clears throat> give me a second. Forty-three, forty-eight. Um. Yeah, it was lonely because it was hard for me to find people that jived with what I jived with, you know, who wanted to come over and just smash stuff and, and take me. I, I did find those kids, but those kids were all unacademically talented because they were also good at school. And so uh, it, it was it was very lonely. I didn't find uh, there was such a divide between kids who were inacademically talented and kids who weren't. Um, I was so fiercely aware of that at all times that the only people that I got on with, well, that I got along with in terms of like, I want them to come over to my house and, and build stuff. Those kids were all unacademically talented. So there was never a pure, I mean, I, this is 
a bit more cynical than I, than I actually am, but it, it felt like there was never like a pure friendship. There was always some resentment there because anybody who liked doing what I do and talking about what I like to talk about was inacademically talented and I wasn't. And so I was always jealous of that. Um, and this was, so that, in that sense, it was very lonely. Um, I didn't feel like I, I got along with, I mean, I got, I'm sure I got along with some kids that were in, weren't an academically talented because this was all 20 years ago or so, um, or 15 years ago. So it's hard to remember, but yeah, it was very lonely. Um, and it was loneliness for myself too, because I felt that whoever I was, wasn't good enough and I don't want to know that guy. And so I was, I, I felt loneliness within myself too, which was a very strange feeling. So what did you do when you felt lonely like would you hang out in your room would you go romp around in the woods like what were what was what was lonely little eric doing <laughs> depends on the age um depends on the age um let's see when i was younger when i was younger lonely um i yeah, I built things. I would go to my basement. My dad had a little shop. I would I would hold myself up in there, and I liked finding sticks in the woods and then coming back and sanding them and taking like this really raw thing and turning it into a really nice polished thing. Um, uh, I got really into melting stuff, seeing what would melt. Like melting sugar was really fun because it smelled nice. Um, squishing things in the vase, nailing pieces of wood together. Um, I made my first miniature in that time too. Um, it was a it was a biplane. I made it out of a a broken balsa wood airplane that somebody had given me for Christmas, I think. Um, I used it and then immediately realized, oh, this is wood. And then I broke it into little pieces. And then I made it a like a tiny sort of the size of a quarter, a little biplane. And then I dipped that into paint, the whole thing, like a like a like like an Easter egg. And then I had this red biplane. And that was really cool. That, that gave me my jimmies. Um, <laughs> and then later, so after we moved to, to Michigan, um, that was seventh grade which is a nightmare for most people. Um, and so I think at that point I spent, yeah, I spent a lot of time in my basement. Um, uh, I spent a lot of time, but this is before I started playing guitar. Um, I spent a lot of time in my basement crafting things, building things, nailing pieces of stuff together, trying to, I always want to try to make something that did something functional because I'd spent, you know, by the time I was 12, I'd spent years making stuff that I just thought were cool. And now it's like, all right, I want to make something that does something like that will help me do other things. And so I started trying to do stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, I started playing guitar and, uh, dicking around in softwares and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, I mean, I was miserable the whole fucking time. That's really when my uh, depression started really grabbing me, uh, and, and taking over. Um, but at that point, I think my, my resentment became part of my identity, uh, or at least how I understood my identity. And so I was like married to it. And, and I think it's a really terrifying moment or it's a terrifying place to be, um, to be in a place where rejection of anything that would make your life better is part of how, who you believe yourself to be. Um, because that is a very fortified type of misery. Um, and that's m most definitely where I was for between the ages of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. How old am I now? <laughs> um, but anyways, that's when it really sort of uh, took hold. Got really into wearing black and, and emo stuff, you know. Eric, I have some good news and I have some bad news. <laughs> What's that? You still wear all black, my dude. Black. Well, that's for a very different reason, Katie. I, there's a very different reason. I'm, I sweat a lot. I'm a very, very sweaty guy. You are a sweaty boy. I cannot wear anything other than black. Otherwise, I'll, 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 I'll look like I just went to, to, to a water park or something. <laughs> so, okay. So what was your childhood bedroom like? Oh, thank you. Um, my first childhood bedroom in Connecticut, my house in Connecticut was pretty old. By American standards, again, um, probably 18 or probably like 190 something or other. Um, so my bedroom had like a curved wall where the roof was and wood paneling thing. Um, not like ornate. It was just cheap. Um, I had a window that went out to like <clears throat> this little awning on my roof. And I like, used to like to sneak on the roof, which was probably terrifying to my parents. So I always tried to, to do it secretly. Um, I had a, a brown carpet. Uh, and the way that the house was built, they were like, I had this little secret corridor, um, because all of the negative space, there was, there was space that wasn't used. Like, um, 
you know, the angle of the stairs, for example, the, the 45 of the stairs was just steeper than the angle of the roof. And so in between the, the ceiling above the stairs and the roof, there was a little crawl space. So I tried to figure out where I could get from one place in my house and get to, to so elsewhere in my house through the walls. <laughs> Such a little creep. I know, right? Well, I, I I discovered it at some point. I discovered like there was this this whole wall in my room that there was a bunch of shit in front of my bed was in front of John McLean <laughs> through the ducks. Well, I, I I there was these there was this closet kind of thing that looked exactly like the wall. Like there were unused closets um, that had just sort of basically been sealed, but so they looked like a wall. Um, and that's what my bed was in front of it, my desk was in front. So I didn't know they were there. But there was a smaller, little closety thing that was used, and that's where I would enter the crawl space to, to go crawl around. Um, and it was quite a day when I was went into that little crawl space, and there was the 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 sheetrock or the drywall um, on the right side of that little entryway crawl space was very flimsy. And me being a obnoxious little kid, I broke it one day deliberately. I was like, I'm just gonna see. It sounds like there's like I did do like there should be negative space back there. And I broke it, and there was negative space back there, Katie. There was a whole closet that I didn't know existed. I mean, I didn't realize it was a closet at the time because that was just a, I figured that was just a wall. But it was a whole little room that was secret. That was a secret little room. Oh, man. And so I became very into, I would, like, drag, you know, like, my parents had, like, bags and bags of, like, old clothes that I had grown out of that one day they're going to take to Goodwill. So I found all of those that we had in the house and, like, covered them all over the floor and then covered that with a blanket so I had a really soft floor in there. Um, and then I took, like, you know, the boxes that are from wherever the hell in some closet. I would take those in so I had a little table. Um, and then my dad, since he was a journalist, he makes graphic, uh, you know, computer graphics. He was one of the first people to ever, like, pioneer that field. Um, so at the, he has like the earliest versions of the Macintosh computer that existed, um, including the Mac plus, I believe it's called. Um, and as I was digging around in there, I found it, I found this Mac plus, um, and that was exhilarating. So I took this computer. It's a little, to so those of you who don't know what a Mac plus book looks like, it's about the size of like a toaster oven. Um, it's a rectangle. It's like just gray. Um, and it has this tiny little screen and a tiny little floppy disk drive and then a big clunky Minecraft looking keyboard. Um, and it even had a little mouse too, which was just like one of the earliest versions of computer mice that there were. Um, and I hooked it all up and I made it work and it turned on and I was like, holy living Lord. And it was like this computer that I'd never seen before. It was like the pixels were huge. It was this tiny little screen on this massive thing. Um, but I started trying to learn to use it and there were very rudimentary uh, graphic design softwares on this computer. And so I remember for one of my brother's early birthdays, he, I don't know, he maybe was turning 10 or something. Um, I built him a little birthday cake in on this computer. And then I found that there was a printer that my dad had somewhere also for this. It was a ribbon printer. It had a ribbon. And, uh, and I figured out how to make that work. And I plugged it into the computer and I was able to print this thing. And my dad didn't know any of this. And so I presented my brother with this birthday card that had a birthday cake on it. Like, that I made in the software. And my dad was like, what the fuck is that? What? Like just, I didn't, he couldn't tell what to make of it. Like, cause the amount of things that would have had to happen for that to exist. Like, first off he would have had to find the Macintosh computer. Okay. I can totally see how he would find it, but then he would have to be using it for long enough to learn this software without me noticing. Like, how could how is that? Well, dad, I built a secret lair in the house in a crawl space and I've been sneaking in there at night and learning a, a, a software that went out of, <laughs> that has been antiquated for 10 years. And then I found your printer and made it work, and now here we are. Um, so that, I don't remember what the question was, but I spent a lot of time in that little nook. I remember I wrote um, uh, the names of like my crushes at the time. Like I would journal on these walls in chalk, and I would write like the names of, of the crushes that I was having um, at the time on those. Uh, and all the while I was going to this place called the Omega Institute, um, the founder of which, uh, Elizabeth Lesser, uh, is hopefully going to be on our podcast at some point. Um, but I had been going there forever. Um, and I had I was like, I had a huge crush on this girl that I met at Omega. And so I wrote this whole like thing about how much I loved her. I'm keeping in mind I'm like eight. Um, and then when we left, I was nervous that like the next people who would find the house would would see it. And so I just put duct tape just all over the entire thing, like redacting it. 
But then my parents had to go in there to get all that shit when we moved. And so when they pulled off the duct tape, it just like tore off this whole section of the wall. I was like, oh God, we were supposed to sell this weekend, weren't we? Uh, sorry about that. Um, but anyways, I loved, I loved building little forts, having my own little secret spaces. That was really fun. Whether it was in the woods or in the crawl space of my walls, I guess. Well, everybody, that's the end of the episode this week. We ran out of time, Eric. We ran out of time, but we'll we'll be back. We have to, we have a lot we have a lot more um, life and times of of Eric to to learn about. So this is this is this is just the beginning. <laughs> I'm just realizing now, be now being in the position that you were last week, it feels like wow. We're, I'm definitely like I'm using my podcast to like tell people just talk about myself. It's very, very vain. It feels very vain. I don't know. We'll see how the reactions are, and we'll see. It's okay. Um, I mean, it's not like I like hearing stories about your life. Like I feel deeply gratified to hear about your cross space stories. Like oh, that's nice. like one. That's wonderful. I like hearing about your life too. It's funny. I, when I was I was getting a coffee right before we recorded this, um, when you were very nicely waiting for me, and uh, for the very first time, I got recognized on the street, which was very nice. Hello, hello, Ka- hello, Katie from Oakland. Uh, sh- hello, how you doing? Um, also, when I you when I get, put my phone into your my number into your phone and called myself, I never actually received that call. So text that number. Anyways, um, there this I was the like podcast or just Craigslist mixed mixed connections. Oh well, man, it wasn't a romantic thing. It was just very <laughs> nice. She was like, "Do you want to talk about neurodivergency?" I was like, "Yeah, sure." Um, <laughs> but I felt bad being like, "I'm sorry, I have to go because Katie's wait. We're going to record a podcast episode." And I was like praying that she wouldn't ask what the topic was. He was like, "Oh, I'm just going to talk about myself for an hour straight. <laughs> like that's what this is going to be." Ugh. Anyways, all right, all right. This is the second end of the podcast. The second end. It's really time. good, Eric. Do you want to hear a funny story, really yeah. quick, oh, before you go? Absolutely. I also had that same exact Mac when I was a kid. <gasps> did you really? I did. My uncle was like worked. He was an accountant at like a like a really fancy firm in Chicago. They were like one of the first firms to like have computers, and so when they like they had like those like the Mac x or whatever they're called and then like they upgraded to like the next version and so this company had like hundreds of these old computers and so they basically were like i don't know you guys can just like take them home if you guys have like kids or whatever like just take the computers and so my uncle's like can i take one for my niece and nephew and they're like yeah of course and so they like he brought us a computer and like that was the first computer that we ever had and like i would do the same thing i would draw like little like it had the paint where you put like yeah. you push the button and it would make like the pattern in like the paint. Yeah. Like I would I would do that. And so like my mom has like to this day these like printouts that I would like make for her of these like cards and stuff that I would print on like the Microsoft Paint software. That's wow. That's so crazy. That's, That's really weird. I, I remember I found I was trying to figure out how to get games on it. Obviously it wasn't connected to the internet, so I couldn't download anything. But there was a game on it called um The Legend of Ra or the Temple of Ra or something like that. And it was like you're basically it was a hallway type thing, so you would press right to go right and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I remember being very scared by that game because it was it was just this little. Th- but the the premise was that you were like walking through this temple, and so I'd be like in this crawl space in my house, well, like hoping I don't turn the corner and there's like a mummy or something like that. It was very scary. Also, it's this it's the same computer that um, uh, that Spider Man has uh, in Civil War when Tony is first meeting. Uh, Peter Parker, he says, oh, RetroTech. He points to his desk. He has a Mac Plus on his desk. And I was like, yes! Ha-ha! I had one of those. It's a very weird coincidence about our life. Wait, I'm basically Tom Holland. I mean, when I think Tom Holland, I think of you. So it's basically the same person. <laughs> I used to look like Tom Holland a little bit. Not anymore. Not anymore. I mean, I like if I took off my glasses <laughs> and put and me in it front was of a very dark, a funhouse mirror that like... and. Just- if you were in a Spider-Man suit and the Spider-Man was playing in the background. So it sounded like Tom Holland was talking when you moved your mouth in that. (laughs) What is happening? (laughs) Well, I have some, some weirdo sent me a Spider-Man costume for no reason. Who? uh, Oh, it was you, Katie. I want to, I I was going to, I did send that to you. You did send that. I thought it was very funny. I thought it was very funny because I get told that I look like Doc Ock all the time. So I was like, clearly Eric needs a Spider-Man costume. Oh, we have, we're that, just 
so many videos to make with you as Doc Ock and me as Spider-Man. And they're all available on my OnlyFans. (laughs) Well, I feel like that's the kind of dumb shit that we're going to do once we actually live near each other. Because right now when we're together, it feels so scarce. Like we have to be doing important stuff when we're together. Yeah. But once we're like, we can just be together whenever. I feel like that's the kind of weird stuff we're going to end up doing. I mean, that's the thing is like, it's like, it's, it feels very self-indulgent to be like, okay, now I'm going to dress up like Doc Ock and you're going to play do Superman. We're going to do a TikTok dance. Like, because like, we're like, we only have 48 hours together like this is ridiculous you know right it's like, but it's like if you like live 10 minutes down the street then i can be like hey come over and put on a spider-man costume we're gonna get weird for a second like it'll be fine <laughs> and that's it that's the end of our tuesday episode However, I have a very important announcement for you, and I think this is very funny. If you liked listening to Eric talk, you better buckle in for Thursday, because our podcast guests this week are going to be Eric's parents. That's right. Eric's actual real human parents are going to be on our podcast. And I don't know what to expect, because we haven't done the interview yet. But man, it takes a certain type of uh, bravery to just invite your parents on to your own podcast this is gonna get so weird it's gonna be amazing so if you want to check us out uh we'll be back on thursday with that episode uh but in the meantime as always you can find us over on patreon.com slash infinite quest if you want to reach out and say hello you can do that by emailing us at infinitequestpodcast at gmail.com and uh that's it as always thanks so much for being here thanks so much for listening thank you so much for your support take your meds drink your water eat a snack, and remember to be kind to yourself. We'll see you on Thursday. Bye, everybody. Also, I don't know why I feel like I need to tell you guys this, but I definitely recorded this whole podcast under a blanket because I'm in Denver and it's really hot in here. So you get get like one take this week. That's it. End of the episode. Bye.